Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. How many letters have got in of no confidence in the PM? Just you and me talking now. Did, did we agree that I was going to reveal the answer? Yes, we do. I'm sure I, I would have said it, yes. Yeah, I, 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 it slipped in my mind, I'm afraid. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics. I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at the Daily Telegraph. And I'm back at my usual bar stool in the Red Lion pub during an explosive week. Yes, another one in Westminster. The pressure that has been building for weeks and weeks finally broke into a summer storm with the delivery of a long-awaited Sue Gray report, meaning that politicians can no longer rely on this stock phrase when discussing Partygate. Let's wait for the reports. Let's wait for the reports. I'm waiting for the report. Are you going to have to wait and see what uh, uh, Sue says? So, to help make sense of it all and to discuss the issues around Partygate, I have a smorgasbord of great guests currently hanging around making a small talk near the Warm Punch and Volavance. Later, we'll be hearing from Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 committee, on a very special personal anniversary for him this week. And Environment Secretary George Eustace will be talking to us about the importance of food security in a cost-of-living crisis. But first, Chopper's Politics podcast was once called Chopper's Brexit podcast. And as so much in modern politics, we can't go too long before talking about the B word, Brexit again. Now this week, the UK signed its first trade deal with a US state. So I invited Trade Minister Penny Mordaunt to the cellar bar of the Red Lion pub to discuss that first deal. And... Not surprisingly, as she arrived, more Tory MPs were putting in letters of no confidence about the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So, of course, we touched on that and Partygate as well. Penny Mordaunt, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How is trade doing? I mean, are we now winning trade deals around the world? Because that's what Brexit is all about. Yes, we are. We are getting some from scratch trade deals done. We've obviously done New Zealand and Australia, and those are going through Parliament at the moment. But we're also in negotiations on many others, as well as CPTPP, the Comprehensive Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yes, a trade so deal with countries it, in, in the Pacific region. It, it, absolutely. And uh, that's about a nine billion a market. So, uh, and Australia's helping us with that, aren't they? Yes, they are. Uh, that we have accession countries. Sorry, um, nine trillion, I should say. <laughs> um, Good. Yeah. So, so we're doing all of these things. We're doing them concurrently. It's a lot of resource, but really, the prize isn't the dry ink. It's what business can then do with those opportunities that we've we've opened up. Uh, and we're seeing it uh, this week, aren't we, with um, individual deals with U.S. states? We are. So we're, we're obviously negotiating a 
a federal level deal. And we're in round five of, of that. With the uh, Biden administration. With the Biden administration. And that will do things like tackle tariff barriers. But actually... There are many other barriers to us doing more business and actually making business easier. And the bulk of the regulation in the US sits at state level. And the bulk of the growth in the US, about 93% of it, sits at in, in key metro areas. So we thought we ought to focus on that. And that's what we've been doing. We've been going around the US, talking to governors, lieutenant governors, congressmen and senators, key powerful mayors to look at the real barriers to trade that exist and to strip away regulation and open up procurement for our businesses. And we have a pipeline of deals, the first of which uh, we're signing this week. With who? With Indiana. With Indiana. And what, how will that benefit the UK businesses or, or shoppers here? So it will allow us to have a regular economic dialogue with the state uh, to continue to open up the market there. But we've been doing some very practical things. We've got our regulators to talk to each other to remove regulation and barriers. We are looking for mutual recognition of qualifications. So that's going to really help technical professions. Service sector. Service sector, legal, financial services, architecture, engineering, all of these uh, things to to really enable uh, more projects to be accessible for our businesses. We are doing procurement pilots, which enable the states to open up their procurement to us in a more methodical way so it's easier for our businesses to to spot those opportunities and many many other practical things lots of support for for SMEs and then very much focused because each of these deals is really bespoke to each state what are the real growth sectors and synergies between what we're up to in different parts of the UK and what they're really focused on and the attitude towards trade and removing trade barriers is very different at state level. But than the border is run by the federal government, isn't it? So, so that will still dominate uh, any trade talks, won't it? The federal uh, deal we need to do? Only for the things that fall into the FTA. So that we, we can't do anything at state level on tariffs, for example, but that all has to be done at the, the federal level. And we will continue to do that. So we're, bo- we're doing both these things in parallel. But at state level, there are an awful lot of things that you can do. And there's a lot of competition between uh, states. You know, you've got a lot of people moving out of California, relocating in other parts of the US because the tax regime and the business, the attitude to business is uh, more convivial. And uh, so we're really looking at where those opportunities are and where the growth is and looking to give our businesses a slice of that action. And with that federal picture, are you worried about the way it's being bogged down in talk about Northern Ireland and the protocol? Look, I think these are these are really separate issues. There isn't a link between the Northern Ireland Protocol and the and the FTA. And I think a lot of the things that are being said about the Northern Ireland Protocol from US stakeholders is for a domestic audience. Mm. And uh, what we it's can wrong do, some of it, isn't it? It is entirely wrong. And uh, when I have been travelling around the US, I have quite often spoken about the actual facts of what is going on. Firstly, that we've had in effect, 20% of the, the checks that are going on across the whole of the EU on goods are happening on 0.5% of the trade. And when you tell them that statistic, their jaw drops and really supports all of the things that we have practically 
been trying to do from veterinary agreements to all sorts of ways of facilitating trade and, and giving the EU the assurance it needs, but in a very pragmatic, sensible way. And the, the other thing that people aren't aware of is they always think we are a whisker away from triggering Article 16. They don't realise that the EU did <laughs> on... For a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> the most sensitive of products, vaccines. Yeah. So... Once you tell them a few facts about what's going on, people start to look at the situation. But they, quite they a quickly way. didn't after a few hours, didn't they? To be fair to the European Union, no, they, they, they absolutely. Well, they were. I think there were some people that were slightly more gung ho uh, than, yeah. than others. But the, the, there are a whole raft. I mean, I've done many debates in Parliament mm. where I've listed how this has not been a, a pragmatic approach. I think on behalf of the the EU, and I know this very well. I I was uh, wingman to both Michael Gove and Lord. Frost on yeah. the Withdrawal Agreement Joint Committee. Well, you live and breathe Brexit. I mean, you were one of the spokesmen of the Vote Leave campaign, and I was with you when you were campaigning with Michael Gove, I think, on the last day in Bournemouth on the Vote Leave battle bus. Yes, I mean, you know, we, I mean, we have been we've been at this for, for some time. I mean, what the country wants us to do now is yeah. maximise the opportunities. Just get Brexit done, Penny. Um, well, Brexit is done. Um, we've got to maximise <laughs> the opportunities. <laughs> we've got to maximise the it's opportunities. It's not done for Northern Ireland. That is a problem, I think. No, and this, I mean, is, why, this is why we have to really resolve that situation. It's, it's, uh, it's, it is not. When will fair. it happen? When will, you, when will the government publish its draft law to replace or reform the protocol? Well, um, Liz Truss is obviously leading the, the charge on this. I think at the moment people are waiting to see what response is coming back from the moves that have, she's recently made. And I, I hope that we will start to see a more pragmatic stance and a shift. And it's tweaks, not, over, not scrapping altogether, isn't it? I saw her writing recently, I think, in The Telegraph saying that. Well, a lot of these things and where we've been trying to concentrate is, is on what practical things can you put in place? We have a vision to have the best border in the world in a couple of years' time. And what will help us do all of that is technology. And we're trying to plug our sometimes a bit creaky legacy systems in HMRC and elsewhere into much newer systems that are owned and built by business. And uh, if we can get those systems talking to each other, that will save a huge headache for, for businesses and strip out um, a lot of their administration. And that was costs. the idea at the time. I mean, and then people go say, oh, it's cameras, cameras at the border. Then that becomes a totemic issue that everyone attacks. Yeah, but, but all of these things are being done all over the world. I mean, I know I, I was used to say from my uh, international development days, look at the freight corridor we've built from East Africa into Central Africa, which is, is using all of this technology. You know, it, this is not, uh, this is not uh, revolutionary stuff. It's very sensible, pragmatic stuff. And, and, and that's what we need to do. And it requires some agreement from the, the EU on uh, what data it's going to be satisfied with and all of those things. But we will we will keep working at this. But I think it people, can't carry on, Penny. It cannot, no, and it mustn't. And I think that uh, well, we have to we we have to make some progress for the sake of mm. uh, people in Northern Ireland. We have to make some. Now, progress. On, on other matters, this week we've heard about the new national flagship. The two uh, firms vying to design it: Honda Wolf in Belfast and Holder Limited, which is based, I think, in the southwest. Uh, are you excited about the prospects of using this national flagship, a replacement for Britannia, for trade deals? So I was always very in favour of us having some one HMG maritime assets. And I did a business plan when I was in the old department of DFID, looking at actually what we needed across government to, to use vessels for and how we could 
do it in the best way that would leave her the best return to government. Because we were having to, you'll remember, you know, Chris Grayling's contracts on uh, For Chris Grayling. We, we need to send vessels over to do hurricane watch. You know, all of these things that we need to do, which were putting a massive strain on grey hulls in the, in the Navy. And so I always thought we needed a couple of ships. Mm. And uh, that we Two could Britannias. Do, two Britannias. And we could use them for a whole variety of things. Yes, you can do receptions on them. You can sign trade deals on them. But actually, there's a need for research platforms. Mm. There's actually a need for training platforms. There's a fantastic organization called Britannia Aid, actually, which trains merchant mariners for the Commonwealth. They wanted to come in on the project because they they, uh, wanted to use it as training platforms. There's all sorts of things we can do on humanitarian, secure hotel accommodation, on training and capacity building, the bulk of which we want to do is with coastal communities. So we could make these ships very busy mm. and uh, we could also get a sustained That's income the idea. from them. That was it's the idea. It's moved on to one it's ship. It's moved on to one ship and I hope that this concept will grow. I think even if we've got just one and it's got a narrower role, it will still be put to good use and will help us, I think, really spread the message about Britain being open for business and uh, enable us to do more things which currently we, we can't because we don't have the holes to do it. And does that business case make sense to you? So back in the day in the 90s, Britannia's official history talks about trade days being a catalyst for the hundreds of millions of pounds of investment in the UK. Is that, is that what, how you can see the, this new ship being used? Look, I think it will help with that. We've always used what we've currently got for that purpose. I mean, Navy ships, as well as doing the huge range of tasks that they have at the pointy end of what they do, they've always been able to do host receptions and we quite often do events on the carriers and those Mm. sorts of things but this new ship will undoubtedly help with that and I think the Britannia brand is very powerful the ship is missed and it uh, was very symbolic and did a lot of good so I think trying to carry on that brand Mm. uh, is is an important would you call it Britannia so I if have you know, my I name it, name it now. I have my own own views about what, that, which probably what's, ought not to. Oh, well, I I felt we um, we need more than one ship, I know, and I know. Uh, uh, you know I you know me, Chris. I'd have had a, well, I'd have had a third aircraft carrier <laughs> named after the Duke of Edinburgh uh, if left to my own devices. But um, well, your uh, name reserve. <laughs> I mean, this is, you want <laughs> there more are ships. reasons why I shouldn't be making these decisions, but. Um, <laughs> I think as well as a name, the livery that we always associate, that, that beautiful dark yes. hole with the... That's uh, important. It, well, I just think that's... Uh, if you're going to do it, you might as well go all in, yeah. I think. And what would you call it? I'm much more sensible to, to get into those kinds of debates. <laughs> that's a key um, issue. Yeah. I mean, we did... When we, when we came up with the original concept of uh, a number of these mercy ships we were looking at uh, Florence Nightingale, Mary Seacole. Of course you, know, you could yeah. have You could have all kinds of iconic... Yes. British yes. Uh, women, uh, women as well. yes, women as well. Um, so uh, yes, but I think a different path has been chosen. Yeah, and uh, the Britannia legacy obviously carries a, a responsibility. And just with that, that thought in mind, we're looking into um, a big week, the Jubilee. It's going to be a big week for patriotism. I mean, is there a problem in this country with embracing our patriotism? Do you think? I mean, certainly on the left, they don't like doing it much, or they haven't in the past, have they? Do you know? I've been thinking about this recently. Chris, because I've I've attended a couple of events in the last week. One was the unveiling of the Submariners Memorial at the Royal Arboretum. The silent service has been silent for too long and, and really didn't have a proper memorial. 
And then last night I attended the premiere of the new film Lancaster and met quite a lot of uh, the veterans from from that who I think probably are still partying at uh, (laughs) this hour in the morning. And those people and Her Majesty the Queen just get on with it. And we've had so much in the media about Agatha Christie, a lot of the drama that uh, you write about, Chris, in in Parliament, you know, blow by blow account of cake and all that sort of stuff. And I just think it's a really British quality that people just get on with it. They're off doing all kinds of jobs. They're working in our armed forces. They're doing incredible things. And they just get on with it without any fanfare and quite often without any recognition. And uh, I think that's what people want to celebrate about the Jubilee. Uh, yes, we, we, we're looking forward to some street parties and some, some great events. But I think that's the respect people have for the, the Queen. Is she, just, she, she just gets that, on with it. She? No fuss. No fuss. No drama. Just get on with it. And just in the view of getting on with it and not bring it down into politics too much, we hear today that John Barron has withdrawn support for the Prime Minister, Julian Sturdy. These are names which are new names. They are not the normal, usual suspects. What's your advice to colleagues of yours worried about the Prime Minister and his future? So, look, I think that as well as the anger that all this was going on whilst everyone else was making immense sacrifices. I think there's an extra layer for a a lot of my colleagues, including ministerial colleagues, because many of them were arguing against some of the restrictions. And actually, I can tell you as a minister, I was arguing against some restrictions for which there was no clinical justification for. So a lot, some of the stuff around weddings, for example, there was no clinical reason why the father of the bride, you know, just to give you one example, had to wear a mask whilst walking his daughter down the aisle. And you gather the evidence, you go and see public health, they say no clinical reason, and you go to number 10 and you say, why are we doing this? Can we lift this? And the very people who are, are caught up in, uh, not the Prime Minister directly, but you're talking to officials in there, And they were saying no. And you'd come away from those meetings saying, why? Why won't you do this? And you can only conclude it's because they weren't living the same reality as as other people. And so I think there's that extra layer of anger from from members of parliament. I think what the public want and, and their anger is in part because they want to see us focusing on the things that matter to them. And I think that what the prime minister knows he needs to do is to get back on that agenda. Well, obviously, we're getting some announcements on cost of living. There's a whole raft of other things we need to really be on the front foot on. In part, some of the fallout of what's going to happen globally from Ukraine. That's what we need to be doing. That's what the public want us to be doing. Competence, professionalism, service. And how do you get to that point? How do you get past this problem with Partygate? You have to deliver. Actions speak louder than words. There's no press release or flim-flam. It's about Get solid delivery and demonstrating that we understand what's important to people. And your advice to these individuals who are, who are saying they can't support the PM anymore. I mean, do you support the PM? Well, yes. I mean, I'm <laughs> one of his ministers. I'm here focusing on the job. I've just come from some dis- <laughs> negotiations with Canada. You know, we, we have got to get growth back in the economy. We've got to get that focus. And I've always been of that mind. We, we're here to roll up our sleeves and, uh, and work for the people that put us here. Well, uh, Penny Mordaunt, thank you for joining us on a busy day for you at the Red Lion Pub. Great to have you on and best of luck with all you're doing. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. 
Right, do stay with us listeners. Coming up, I'll be talking to the Environment Secretary George Eustace and the man who holds all the cards in the PM's future, Sir Graham Brady. Right after this. The Telegraph brings you a new podcast series, Eyewitnessed History. Harry, will you take Meghan to be your wife? The moments we all remember. I will told by Telegraph journalists who were there. You remember how magical and remarkable it all was, and it makes you feel sad that they're no longer a part of the royal family. Follow Eyewitness History in the same place you're listening to this. Now, if you go shopping in your usual supermarket, you will have noticed the soaring price of some basic food commodities. And a man concerned about that is George Eustace, the Environment Secretary. So this week, I popped up to his office in the House of Commons to ask him about what he thought should be done to deal with the cost of living crisis. George Eustace, I've just come from the 1922 committee meeting where Boris Johnson is convincing everybody to support him and his premiership. We're here now in your office in the House of Commons. Thank you for joining us or having us on Chopper's Politics podcast. Has he done enough, do you think, to survive? Well, I think he has in the sense that the, the Sue Gray report, it, doesn't, it, it builds on what she said in her interim findings, but doesn't add a great deal more to what we already knew. And obviously we've had a very exhaustive police uh, investigation. So I think obviously you know, it's a significant moment in that this is her final report and you know, the government's going to want to read that. The Prime Minister's going to want to make sure that Number 10 in particular learn the lessons from that. But I think... The Prime Minister's obviously recognised that what went on in Number 10 you know, was wrong. He's apologised for that now uh, many times. He's paid his own fixed penalty for the, the birthday event. And I, I think you know, for people like me, and I think for many in our party, while this has been undoubtedly uh, you know, a difficult and, and damaging episode that we'd all uh, obviously have uh, preferred wouldn't have happened, we do have some really big issues as a country we've got to deal with. Yep. And I think on the big issues that the Prime Minister gets those calls right and sometimes you know, he brings a boldness to decision-making which actually we, we need at this uh, difficult moment. Well, we'll come on to those big issues shortly, but have you been embarrassed by the government in recent weeks? Is that report embarrassing, the Sue Gray report? Well, obviously, uh, the photos that, that you see, um, you know, yes, it's quite damaging and it's understandable that when people uh, see these reports of, of parties that were carrying on at number 10, you know, late into night, of course, there's going to be a, a high level of anger because across the country, people couldn't, uh, you know, go to funerals of friends, they couldn't visit loved ones in hospitals. And so all of us completely understand, you know, the anger that many people uh, will feel. But I was saying, you know, it's, it's why it's been so important that we've had this very thorough police investigation with dozens of fixed penalty notices issued because these events shouldn't have happened. And is the PM the right person to lead the party? Has he got the character to be Prime Minister? Uh, yes, I think he has, because... We've always understood, and one of the things that the electorate quite liked uh, about Boris Johnson is, in some ways, he was quite unconventional as a as a politician. You know, he would do things differently, and uh, um, so they quite, liked it's that. Priced in the behaviour well, we're talking about. Well, they, um, there's something about that. There's yeah. an unconventional nature in which he approaches the job. That's on one level always been what also people quite liked uh, about him. That it it wasn't just ducking and diving and trying to to carry on without making decisions. He actually will, will sometimes be quite bold. And I think you know this has obviously been a, a very uh, you know difficult, embarrassing episode. But I still think that that on the big decisions he gets it right. 
And I, I think in this, um, you know, the remaining two years of this parliament, you know, he's got a, a great deal more to give. What your activists, our readers at Telegraph, care about often is law and order. And breaking the law is a bad one, isn't it? I mean, do you think that might damage the party at the next election? Well, look, I think at the next election, there's going to be a, a lot of other things happening between now and then. And so the really big challenge we've got at the moment is, as we emerge from this pandemic, it's increasingly apparent that the whole world can't just stop the economy uh, and put it in, uh, uh, in, in, in a sort of deep freeze, if you like, during lockdowns for two years and expect there to be no consequences. So we've got all of us, um, you know, quite a global challenge of rising prices. You've got the challenge of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and everything that goes uh, with that. And between now and the election, we've got to yeah. uh, steady the ship deal with that inflationary pressure, get that back under control uh, and make sure that we get our economy growing again and make sure that we you know, bank the advantages that we can have of leaving the European Union and regulatory reform and so on. And we've got to demonstrate that, that we can achieve all of these things and do it in time for the next election. And then that's how we'll be judged. You know, we'll be judged at the next election, in my view, and not on these uh, particular episodes that happened in, in number 10, but on whether we've delivered as a government, and that's what our focus is. It's frustrating, isn't it, because it seems to me, and an MP said to me today, it's like a boxer repeatedly punched themselves in the face because Keir Starmer's really landing no major blows on the government. It's all self-inflicted. Uh, that's right, but I, in all of my time in politics, indeed working as an advisor for, for David Cameron and being involved with different governments since, there are always these frustrations and distractions, and they afflict every single horse government. Was, was horse um, no, you were an MP on the horse um, Yes, I was. I was an MP, and we, we obviously had, under Blair, there was... Uh, you know, the whole cash for honours thing tobacco, that was going on. We, we had the phone hacking scandal under David Cameron. So all governments get afflicted by uh, episodes of this sort. Clearly what went on in, in number 10 was wrong. Those fixed penalty notices have been issued, but, but we've really still got to get back on track. It's fundamentally, uh, when you come to, you know, a general election, people will judge an incumbent government on whether they think, you know, it's made solid progress on, on those big issues. And they will judge an opposition on whether they think it's ready to take the reins and, and take government. And I think at the moment, Labour doesn't look like a government in waiting in the way that David Cameron's operation looked like a government in waiting. I think Keir Starmer's still some way from that. And, you know, we've still got two years in order to get back on track, having come out of this pandemic, and it's been a very difficult uh, episode, and really deliver for the country and deliver the things we said we would do in the manifesto and yeah. demonstrate that. Well, we'll come on to that of a fifth-term Tory government. But you, do, you mentioned uh, taking the, the benefits of Brexit. You were a Brexiteer yourself. You published this week uh, this uh, genetic technology precision breeding bill. Well, what will that mean to, to shoppers? Is it basically legalising frankenfoods, or what is it? No, so um, you genetically modified crops are crops where you, you take a gene from one species, a totally different species, and take it across species boundaries and plant it in another one. And sometimes uh, they'll even use genes to cross from the animal kingdom to the plant kingdom. And that obviously rightly causes people some concerns, and there's a very strict uh, regulating regime around that that actually we'll retain. However, uh, when it comes to things called gene editing... Uh, or precision breeding technologies, we're not taking genes across species boundaries. We might be taking a trait that's in one variety of wheat 
and more accurately placing it into the same, a, a different variety of wheat. Shorter stem yes, and so example. it's moving traits within a species. So you're not crossing a species boundary. Like a rose, developing a rose or... Exactly. And it could be taking a trait from yeah. one type of um, sugar beet and putting it into a different one in order to give you, say, resistance to you know, virus yellows, which is a, a big disease that, that affects sugar beet at the moment and is the reason we've had to, to use neonicotinoids. And so it, it gives us the ability to do... Things that could achieve could be achieved by conventional breeding practices, um, and we've always selected for particular traits through plant breeding, but to be able to do it in an accelerated, more targeted way so that we can get the traits we're, we're seeking, but get them much faster. And if we can do that, then you know, we really can you know, re- reduce our dependence on chemical pesticides. And you couldn't do it in the European Union because they were going to regulate the area like, like GMO. That's right. And so what happened in, in the European Union is businesses were starting to use these gene editing technologies. But a judgment by the European Court of Justice in 2018 held that gene editing for the purposes of the law should be treated the same as genetic modification. Now, that was a a legal judgment rather than a scientific judgment. So the European Court didn't say, we think there's something unsafe about this. What they said is the way our, our, our law is drafted, we think it should be treated as a GMO. And so what you've got in the EU at the moment is something that's based on the interpretation of a vast legal script rather than a a proper scientific judgment. What we are now applying is a a proper scientific judgment, rightly recognising that these precision breeding techniques are different and distinct. You're not not going to allow anyone to label label when things are being gene edited, are you? We don't think that's necessary, no, because the reality is that these crops will always be um, things that could have been bred by conventional means. And so just as we don't label bread that might have a, an F1 hybrid type of seed okay. in it, which is a, a conventional uh, system of breeding where they, they run two parallel lines and then uh, cross them at the, uh, at the final position to get uniformity, um, we don't label those because uh, it's a conventional breeding technique. This also would be a conventional What can the government technique. do to, to cut the cost of food? It's going to be going up, isn't it, because of the problems in Ukraine with grain and stuff? There's always been a very close correlation between international agricultural commodities uh, and the price of gas. And that's because fertiliser is a major input and that requires large amounts of gas. Uh, And it's because things like tractor fuel on farms uh, and even bread lorries, you know, which are running bread all over the country. It's a very expensive operation in terms of fuel. So there's always been a very close correlation. Food prices are rising, but you know, not by quite as much as, as some people you know, portray it. If you, if you hear some of the coverage about skyrocketing food prices, uh, they're rising uh, for sure. And in May, uh, in April, they went up by 1.5%. It was 0.2% in March. Overall, in the last 12 months, they've gone up by about 6.5%. So inflation is, is obviously running higher than we've been used to but not quite as high as some people have have suggested. And actually, in a lot of categories, there's some very ferocious competition between retailers that's keeping some of those uh, categories pinned down and the the cost of those down that's helping um, moderate those Mm. those price rises. And what can the government do more? I mean, you're banning, rather, you're not banning, are you, these buy one, get one free deals? We've decided to, you know, to delay that. And, uh, you know, the the idea behind the, you know, ending those... um, those buy one get one free type type promotions was to, was to try and stop the situation we have where people will be on multi buys, particularly on chocolate, and uh, and actually end up consuming, you know, more than they should. Uh, however, there are other areas where people might have a 
you know, buy one, get one free. And in the current context, we just felt it was right to, you know, to delay it. The other day you were saying people should buy cheaper food and you were criticised, weren't you, by people for saying that? Yeah, I wasn't actually telling anybody what they should or shouldn't do because, you know... <laughs> you're a Tory, family, well, you don't do that, do you? We don't do that, but um, I always say to people, you should watch the full interview rather than watch the Twitter row uh, about what I said because... So what did you say, George? Well, what I was actually saying is that last time we, we saw price rises um, go up like this in 2008, the, the interesting thing is that although prices rose... Household spending on food, particularly among the poorest 20%, didn't change that much. It, it stayed at around 16%. Mm. And the reason for that, when we did the behavioural analysis, is that some people did change their shopping habits. Uh, they bought uh, fewer expensive items, uh, cut down slightly on meats, which cost more money. And in some cases, yes, downsized to more value brands away from branded options. And that's not me telling people that's what to do. It's just an observation that that is what some people do when, when faced with a challenge on their budgets. Look, I think what, what I understand is in the current context where people are feeling pressure on their budgets, sometimes this happens in government. Things are in a difficult space. Yes. We're having to tread a difficult uh, line and, and don't want to sort of spark inflation. So we're having to strike a, a, a difficult uh, line here. And often it's the case in politics that you, you know, people decide you can't do any rights. And so mm. small things you say uh, that actually, in, in reality, are perfectly reasonable mm. will sometimes be blown up. What ideas are, is your department developing to help people tackle the cost of living crisis? Um, there are limits to, to what we can do, because yeah. fundamentally the driver uh, of these uh, price rises... Uh, is the price of gas, uh, and that's driving up input costs for manufacturers. And some of those are unavoidably having to be passed on to retailers. And so the really big question is the extent to which retailers will absorb and cushion some of those increased costs. We talk a lot there about food production and the rest. Is it now the opportunity to think about food security? I read somewhere that we're 55% self-sufficient on food. Is that a worry for you? Well, for the food that we can produce, we're actually about 75% self-sufficient. And actually, the areas where we see seen agricultural output grow uh, are in horticulture uh, and in uh, pigs and in poultry, areas, in fact, that don't require a lot of land. And so the truth is that two-thirds of our agricultural output comes from just a third of the land. And actually, if you look at 20% of farmland uh, at the other end of the scale, it only produces 3 or 4% of our food. So what that tells me is there's not a straight-line correlation between land area and agricultural output and it's entirely possible to have some land use change in some landscapes, to have a more sensitive, a more sensitive approach, more extensive approach to farming in some other landscapes, mm. and still increase your agricultural output by investing in, for instance, a new generation of glass houses. Mm. And that's what we've got to, that's a circle yeah. we've got to square. So you can have more okay. environmentally friendly farming in yeah. some areas, but a more intensive uh, but sustainable and, approach. And should Telegraph others. readers be doing more, more digging, more planting of vegetables, allotments? Well, look, I think that there are a lot of very good schemes, um, some of them backed by local authorities, um, some of them sort of peri-urban gardens that produce box schemes for local communities. They're quite vibrant, they're quite successful. They're always going to be, a, to be honest, a very small part of our, of our food supply, and we should be realistic about that. But equally, I think there's something um, really quite good about people being connected to the yeah. soil, to food production, and having an appreciation of it. What does that mean in English? Plant more veg? It means it's great to have an allotment <laughs> uh, and, and, and learn about all the things that can go wrong when you're trying to grow something. Of course, you're looking into the next election as, as you wind up, George Eustace. Boris Johnson will be leading into the next election. I very much hope so. Will he? 
Yes, I hope so. <laughs> but, you know, it's not my choice, uh, ultimately. Uh, but I think he's got the big decisions right. And, you know, it is a double-edged sword. So we, we, we've, we've, we've got these sorts of episodes that we've been dealing with, obviously, now. But, but fundamentally, um, it's also uh, what the public liked about him. It's never easy changing horses partway through, you know, a, a parliament. And I think it's, it's really important that we, we get this episode behind us get back in the saddle and deliver what we said we'd do at the last election. Well, George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper Politics. Thank you very much. Now, you always know when a Tory leader is in trouble when people start talking about Sir Graham Brady a bit more than usual. Graham is the chairman of the 1922 Committee of Backbench Tory MPs. He's the man who must corral and receive letters of no confidence in any Tory leader. So reporters like me try and buttonhole him in the House of Commons to find out how many letters he's got. Sadly, he never tells me. But this week is a big week for Sir Graham Brady because this week he becomes, well, let's get him to tell you. It is the, the week in which I become the longest serving chairman of the 1922 committee. Goodness me, ever. Ever. I will have done just over 12 years uh, and will just beat Sir Edward Ducan, who did exactly 12 years. And it's an important job in the party. I was reflecting on we only ever hear about you when things are going difficult for the Tory party. That's why your big name, Marcus Fox in the 90s, that kind of thing. But you've, you've turned on jobs in front bench jobs for this job, haven't you? I have, and I think it was the the right call. One of the concerns that I have about our constitutional arrangements is that too many members of parliament are looking for advancement from party leaders at yeah. any one time. And you know, certainly for the last 12 years, I've had uh, a wonderful privilege extended to me by my colleagues, which is to represent them, to represent their interests, and I hope to be able to champion their rights to uh, take a more independent stance. It's not a paid role, is it? It's not a paid role. Have you ever thought of standing yourself to be leader? Well, as is well known, I I contemplated it in Mm. 2019 because a few months earlier, a number of colleagues had asked me if I would. And, uh, Steady hand in troubled times at that uh, point. Exactly. And I think, uh, I, I think we'd had so many troubled times that started to look <laughs> appealing, but uh, it, it didn't last. And yes. uh, I think by the time there was a vacancy about to come, when I then asked around, I, I think yeah. things had, had moved on. So it was fairly obvious that, that Boris was going to win at that point. Now, you're approaching your centenary, but being the Tory party and being in the 1922 committee, your centenary is actually in, not in... 2022, but 2023. Please explain. Well, obviously, it's something we do to confuse American tourists. But uh, <laughs> actually, the, uh, the the reason is that the 1922 committee was founded by the conservative intake from the 1922 election. And it was when they'd been rattling around Parliament for a few months, they decided they'd try to find a way of being better informed and more effective in their roles. So they started meeting together as an intake. They went right at the outset to see the then chief whip and told them what they were going to do. And very sensibly, instead of seeing this as a putative plot that needed to be stamped out, he saw it as an opportunity and offered to send a whip to each of the main meetings of the 22 to tell colleagues what the forthcoming business of the House was going to be. And of course, this has meant that right from the start... We've been an open channel of communication. Whips have been present at the meetings, but also it's 
for many, many years, it's been the routine that after our meetings, the officers of the 1922 committee will go and sit down with the chief whip and discuss things that have cropped up. Mm. Sometimes things that have been said in the main meeting of the 22, but more often and more importantly, probably the things which have been discussed at the executive meeting, which goes on before. Mm. And if That's people, on Wednesday afternoons, four till five and five till six. I, yeah. Indeed. And, and if, if people often get the impression that the 1922 committee leaks uh, a little bit too much, the executive <laughs> Executive almost never uh, leaks. It's a pretty private environment. So we're normally able to have really good, discrete discussions there. So it's kind of tolerated in the same way a union might be tolerated in a workplace, I think, by the, by the management over in Number 10 Downing Street or wherever the party leadership is, if the, if the Tories not is not in power. But they're not always happy with you. You've had some run-ins, haven't you, with the executive over your time? I, I think inevitably there, there will sometimes be a tension between uh, party leaders and the parliamentary I mean, party. I think twice they've tried to dethrone you, haven't they? The whips and, and the government? Well, I, I, I had candidates stand against me yes. uh, last year and the year before, which might, saw them off. might possibly be connected to the very robust stance that I took against the lockdown uh, mm. restrictions over the last... Uh, you're hardly helpful on Brexit either, for the Theresa May's government, certainly. Well, I tried to be helpful on Brexit. Ooh, the, Brady the, yes. the, the, the Brady Amendment that was uh, the only positive thing on Brexit that passed uh, was clearly an attempt to, uh, to help the government out of difficulties. What was I again? Remind um, me. Well, oh, my goodness. Um, it's, I'm afraid it's still topical. It's still uh, it, it, it was to find alternative arrangements at the Irish border. And the, the principle was that we kept hearing from the EU side in the negotiations that there was simply nothing that the British Parliament could agree upon. And it was fairly obvious to me that the thing that the British Parliament could agree upon was the withdrawal agreement, but without the Northern Irish border arrangements, mm. which were so problematic. So it was a declaratory vote that said, this is what we would like. Yeah. Uh, and it did at least provide that answer to the EU. There was a way forward. The, the power of, of the 22 committee has always been stru- strikes me that um, when you meet at 5pm with a mass meeting with Tory backbenchers, you always make the minister wait for about 10 minutes. And me being an old hand, I know that if I pop down to the committee corridor outside room 12 at about five o'clock, there's normally a minister there kicking their heels with nothing to do because they can't go anywhere in case they're called in. Why do you have that 10-minute delay apart from to help journalists? I think it's um, a point of principle, really, to establish the independence of the Conservative backbenches. It is a private committee meeting, and it's for us to decide when we wish to have a guest who is uh, a member of the front bench. Now, of course, in recent years, we have extended an open invitation to colleagues who happen to be ministers at the time. They can come and join the assembled company for the meeting of the 22, and some do from time to time, some do reasonably regularly. But uh, they aren't able to vote if we have elections. And I think it is an important distinction just to point out it is when we're in government, it is a backbench committee. Now, but by my account, you've, you've worked with three Tory leaders, David Cameron, Theresa May and Boris Johnson. Who was easiest to get on with? <laughs> um, well, they've all been very, very different in style. And, you know, I suppose uh, David Cameron would uh, sit with his uh, shoes off and his feet up on the coffee table and his 
hands he, behind his head. Uh, it certainly wasn't like that with uh, with Theresa. <laughs> Come on, Theresa uh, like that. And uh, you know, we, we would have um, uh, tea in uh, China cups. And, uh, <laughs> it was all very uh, all more very formal, proper. wasn't it? Yeah. A little bit more formal, yeah. but also uh, I, I saw uh, quite a lot of Theresa during the time that she was prime minister, and there were obviously some difficult times. But there are also, I think, moments when we were able just to have very good private discussions. And it was tricky for her. I mean, emotional. I mean, I've been outside that meeting room when you've had these meetings. And Theresa May, I think, famously, after losing the meaningful vote three in 2019, she's, she just announced, didn't she, at the 22, I will stand down if you accept this deal. I mean, obviously, you were chairing the meeting. Yes, yes. And it is difficult because you know, we are all members of the same party sometimes. Your colleagues, your friends. I yes, mean. Exactly. And, you know, of course, we will sometimes have uh, disagreements about policy or, or style or whatever. But uh, seeing human beings going through those very difficult uh, moments, it's, uh, uh, it is painful. Mm. With the, the three uh, prime ministers that I've dealt with in this capacity, I've always tried both to give my own advice, but also to be very clear about what I think the balance of opinion mm. in the It's party. a different way of serving politics, isn't it, that you've chosen this, this route rather than, as you say, preferment and doing things in government, being minister for paperclips, whatever you might choose to not be or be. But you've chosen this, this route, haven't you? Well, maybe it chose me in a way. It's not something I ever thought I'd be doing. When somebody suggested it to me when Michael Spicer was approaching at the time when he was going to leave the, mm. the Commons, I thought it was crazy because I wasn't nearly old enough. Mm. Uh, mm. Now I find distressingly I am old enough. <laughs> You're a grandee, uh, Graham. I've got to ask you about um, COVID. Now, you've been one of the champions against all the COVID, various COVID lockdowns, restrictions. What's your reaction to these photographs of parties in Downing Street? Uh, well, obviously, the, the whole uh, episode has, has been uh, unfortunate. But as you say, I was far more concerned from the outset what I thought was a, a grossly illiberal approach that was taken in the COVID response. And you know, I just think that government overstepped the proper boundaries to uh, tell people that it was illegal to see their children or grandchildren unless they already lived with them, to make it uh, impossible for people to uh, see uh, dying relatives. These, uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, it's very seriously questionable what was allowed to happen. And one of the things I, I fear that led to that was the fact that the House of Commons um, didn't sit properly in its usual way. And even though they made huge efforts to make the virtual proceedings work, for those of us who were there in person throughout, it was very obvious that scrutiny was much more effective if you were there in person. You uh, couldn't, if you were zooming into the chamber, for instance, intervene on a, a minister. Uh, so if, if a minister says something that was plainly wrong or made no sense, um, if you're in the chamber, you could come in and come back at them. Uh, so for me, it was... Um, a, a that was real... why you opposed it. Uh, but we, you see what was happening behind the scenes in, in, in number 10. Now, that says to me that Boris Johnson and his team didn't really believe in the rules themselves either, even though they're imposing them on us. I, I think it's very difficult. Of course, there is truth that there was a, a hugely pressurised work environment and uh, you know, a lot of people who were working very long days and so on. But you know, equally, I think we were all very conscious of the restrictions. There were quite extreme restrictions that were in place. And you know, clearly people are angry about mm. both what appeared to be going on in Downing Street and what seemed to be going on uh, in is Durham it, uh, with the yes. leader of the opposition as is well. Is the PM's position tenable in your view? Well, Chris, I'm not going to get into conversations about what might happen in the future. You know that I have a very particular constitutional role 
uh, and function to perform. So I, I think it, it would be wrong for yes. me to. Enter well, I've, I've just got one one last question. Which I, I mean, no one's listening apart from my mother and Louise the producer. But how many letters have got in of no confidence in the PM? Just you and me talking now. Yeah, of course. Just uh, you, me, and the gatepost. Yes, uh, I, I'm sure. Did, did we agree that I was going to reveal the? Answer? Yes, we do. I'm sure I, I would have said it. Yes, yeah, I, 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 it slipped my mind. I'm afraid. So. <laughs> you are absolutely um, sphinx-like on this, and have been as long as I've known you. Which is your credit in the mad world of Westminster, Graham Brady, longest-serving chairman of the 1922 committee. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Well, that's all for this week, listeners. Let me know your thoughts on what we've discussed today. Email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or on Twitter. Tweet me at chopperspodcast. And if that's not enough chopper for you, and if not, why not? Please sign up to Chopper's Politics newsletter to get more Westminster Whispers delivered straight into your email inbox every weekday. The link for that is telegraph.co.uk forward slash politics newsletter. And be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary column on the Telegraph's website every Friday evening at 7pm and in Saturday's brilliant Soraway Daily Telegraph newspaper. Thank you again to my guests, Penny Mordaunt, George Eustace and Sir Graham Brady. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells, Giles Gear, and Theodora Luludis. And thank you especially to Ellie Butterworth for holding the microphone during George Eustace's interview. And as ever, thank you to you for listening. And finally, please do buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph. You won't regret it. I know that for sure. Until next time, though, from here at the Red Lion Pub, cheerio!